Welcome to Real Ghost Stories Online. Call in your real ghost story now at 855-853-4802 or write in at realghoststoriesonline.com. You're about to enter the world of the unknown and quite possibly the undead. This is Real Ghost Stories Online. Hello and welcome to Real Ghost Stories Online. It's uh, Tony and Jenny Bruski joining you once again. Uh, it is another special best of 2014 episode for you today. If you'd like some brand new stories, uh, sign up to be an EPP right away. We'll get that email out to you. You don't have to wait till the weekend. The minute you sign up to be an EPP, uh, that email goes right out uh, to the email address that you sign up to your PayPal with and you will get the uh, bonus episodes right there. I believe 18 episodes is what will arrive in your inbox fairly instantly. So feed your fix that way or just stay tuned. we got a great hour of some of the best ghost stories of 2014 here at Real Ghost Stories Online as we take a look back uh, at uh, our uh, our first big year uh, on the air uh, here at uh, Real Ghost Stories Online. Of course, you can always call in your ghost story, 855-853-4802, or write in on the website, realghoststoriesonline.com. Let's kick off the best of Real Ghost Stories Online for 2014 and today's episode. Real Ghost Stories Online. All right, let's go over to Cisco. Hello, Tony and Jenny. This is Cisco. And I wanted to tell you guys that Jenny, you were 100% correct in your assumption that I was not talking about you guys when I last called. You guys are doing a wonderful job, and you're also providing a venue for people to talk about their experiences, and that is a wonderful thing. Um, As a child who saw a lot of things, it is very important for people to know that they are not alone in these experiences, and that's one reason that I got into doing what I do, because it's very it's, it's horrifying for a kid to not be believed. Um, I thought I would tell you about one of my earlier experiences. It was circa 1965. I was the youngest at around three to four years old um, of seven siblings. And the, the next one in line was 16. So I was very young at the time, and all of them were older than that, and everybody was still living at home in a farmhouse. Now, apparently, I had been put in for a nap during the day, and I guess somebody had put me down to sleep on my parents' bed. And I remember being in the center of the bed and something waking me up. I sat up, I looked, and my parents had had these double shutter doors. Everything seems so big when you're little, and they just seem like they took up the whole wall. But even in the daylight, I could see a light that was coming from kind of under the doors that moved up and started pushing through the shutters. So the light is like peeling through the shutters, and it kept growing, like it was coming out and up at the same time. The light got brighter and brighter as it approached me, and I'm sitting up looking at this right in front of me. Um, I don't know where the other people in the house were, but... I just remember looking at this and it's just getting bigger and brighter and it's coming towards me and it's pushing out through the shutters. And it's really odd because I can remember later on in life seeing that in a movie and it just took me right back. Well, in the center of this really bright light, 
there started to be an image and the image grew as the light grew and it came towards me at out of these shutters and as this image grew it turned into a face and then basically a head with no body and it kept just it was all very fast and it just came at me so quickly and the face that got more image to it you could see that it had a ponytail no neck but you could see the ponytail almost flying behind it and had this red ribbon uh, I'll never forget as I was looking at that I could tell at the same time it opened its eyes and where the eyes would be just this angry red light and I've heard that in multiple other uh, ghost stories and and you know reoccurrences of people telling stories or seeing it um, I've since learned that it's just it, it's an anger energy and it opened its mouth to scream and no sound came I heard nothing I don't remember hearing anything it just whooshed at me and I saw this and I remember the, the ribbon matching the eyes that's all I remembered and I've as it whooshed towards me I remember falling backwards and I was screaming I could hear myself screaming and then my sister and my mother ran into the room and that's all I remember now the odd thing about this is with all the siblings in my house uh, one one brother and the rest sisters my father was a World War II veteran and he was suffering from what they called at that time shell shock and he had a bit he, he drank a little bit and um, when he came home I can remember different talks about certain things happening in the house, things being missing or whatever, but with that many people, it's hard to place. But of course, I was very young. And I remember my mom speaking of it later, and my, you didn't talk about these things around my dad. So what happened was, um, not long after that, my mom and dad managed splitting up, and the family, being older, all went in different directions. Everybody went on with their lives. And we moved to a different state, my mother and I. So we never really got together for several years for a family reunion. Actually, many years, excuse me, for a family reunion. And I remember sitting there, and I was much older, and somebody sat. This was the first time we all got together, almost 20 years later. And we're all sitting there, and somebody says, does anybody remember the ghost? Two of my sisters got up and walked out of the room. They weren't having it. They, it bothered them so much they wouldn't talk about it. And everybody started to reaccount the fact that you couldn't speak about it in the house. My dad would get very upset and shut everybody up. And everybody started talking about their accounts that they'd had in this farmhouse. And this farmhouse was probably well over 150 years old when we lived in it. It was a farmhouse in New Jersey. And everybody saw the same ghost, but being the fact that they weren't talking a lot about it or spoke to, you know, maybe one sister spoke to another about it, but they kept it quiet. Everybody started matching up stories. And I was shocked to hear that they, everybody was seeing the same guy. Now, there's a second part to this. I know there's not going to be time on this, but there's a second part to this where my sister saw a ghost or something in her room. She, had, she was the oldest one, and we, we talked about it at the reunion. She was the oldest one, and she would she was screaming. I remember everybody waking up when we were back there, and 
she's screaming, there's a man in my room, there's a man in my room. She's got the door locked. And she had worked on a report for high school. And you'd type it on those old typewriters. They used to pass it around, you know, like the old push-button ones. And everybody worked real hard and took good care of their homework because it was so hard to do back then. And she had it all on top of her dresser, and she had a jar of Noxzema sitting next to her because all my sisters used that before they went to sleep. It was a big deal. My sister's in her room. She was the only one in the farmhouse who had um, her own room. She was the oldest girl. She always locked her door, and it was these big, heavy farmhouse doors. Uh, it was the, the farmhouse was about 150 years old. And this was, again, in 1965-ish. Um, everybody heard her screaming, there's a man in the room, there's a man in my room. And everybody got up and scrambled. We were, unfortunately, very used to my dad um, getting, you know, he would have these problems from being a World War II veteran, and he would have these memories, and they would cause him to go off, especially when he drank. And it was always seemed to be some kind of, unfortunate ruckus going on um so this was something that happened unfortunately quite a bit so i remember there was a lot of scrambling going on everybody running down the stairs and people just you know all my you know talking about nine people in a hallway at one time just bumping into each other and trying to figure out what's going on my sister's screaming my brother and my father are banging on the door telling her to unlock the door and she's just screaming and like I said, these are big, heavy doors. Finally, she got up and she opened it. She, I, I saw her jump back on the bed, like pull the covers up over her. And everybody just rushed in. I was held back. I was with my um, another sister. And all the talking that was going on. Now, she had, excuse me, done her homework and put it up on this high dresser, one of those dressers that had like six doors and it was real high with a mirror above it. She had her homework there with a jar of Noxzema when she put me to bed. And it seemed at the time when everybody just got done running around, they opened the door and I see that Noxzema was spread all over. It's a heavy white cream, if you don't know what that is, face cream. It's spread all over the mirror with great big handprint and all her homework is tore up. Now, my father's yelling and screaming, and he's saying that there's, you know, what's going on here? What'd you do? Did, you know, there's lots of different screaming and yelling. My brother goes to the window to look, and the window is shut. Now, there had been snow that night. It was in the wintertime in Jackson, New Jersey, and it was very cold. And they took a flashlight, and they went outside, and they looked. And there's no footprints in the snow. It was on the second or I would say probably the second floor. And maybe the third, I honestly can't remember because the little part that was up high and it may have been that one. But either way, no footprints in the snow. Nobody could have got up. The window was shut. And there's all this stuff. And the handprint on the mirror was bigger than hers. Now, later on, when we had had the family reunion, another uh, sister had started telling the story because my sister had confided in her. And spoke about what the man looked like and yes he was a revolutionary war type uniform with a ponytail with a red ribbon in his in his ponytail 
and that shocked me. That just brought me back when I heard that because that's what I had seen at three years old in the shutters, the first part of the story, the head that I'd seen. And it got confirmed almost 20 years later, and we all started spilling our stories about what had happened, all the things that had been missing in the house. And somebody said, did you ever hear about what Dad found in the pantry? My mother had wanted a pantry built in the kitchen, off the kitchen. And when he knocked down the wall to make the pantry bigger, he found a hidden staircase that went up and ended at the back of my sister's closet door. He said there were things found in there. He took them out and he threw them away right away. And my mom had said there was letters and a red ribbon that was tied around the letters. So who knows? You can add what you want there. But that was my first experience and what had me embark on to an investigation of my own throughout my life that sparked an interest in finding out about the paranormal and what happens when you die. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people when they have experiences when they're little. They just keep on looking for answers. What happened? Why did I go through that? What's happening in this world? What happens when you die? What happens afterwards? And that's the whole idea. And that's why what you guys do. Um, Jenny and Tony is important to let people talk about what they experienced so they can hear, other people can hear, they can hear what other people have went through. And it's important because to know that you're not alone and you weren't crazy or as crazy as you might think you are. And that's very important. And thank you for what you do. Y'all have a blessed evening. Good night. Thank you uh, for the call, Cisco. I was just doing a little research, and there is all kinds of paranormal in Jackson, New Jersey. Yeah? Yeah, all kinds. It's probably one of those hotbeds of the country, though, where, you know, a lot of stuff... There's so much history, because it's such an old part of the country, right? A lot of it it, that I'm seeing just in this little bit of research Mm -hmm. since she's called... Um, does have to do with the Revolutionary War. Sure. So that must have been a very important site. Battlegrounds mm-hmm. and, yeah. Real Ghost Stories Online. Hi, Tony. This is Beatrice. Um, calling with a story that happened to my best friend in Guatemala, Central America. And I remembered it because of the show you did about haunted antiques. In Guatemala, a couple of years ago, um, maybe more than a couple, around 10 or 12 years ago, they decided, and by they I mean local vendors, to stand on street corners with what apparently were antiques. Although upon close inspection, you can see that the wood or the metal that was used to make these so-called antiques were just really weathered out and not antiques per se. But the story is that my best friend and her family used to live in a zone called Zone 7, which is um, built upon one of the biggest Mayan cemeteries called Caminal Huyu. And they had a very rough time with um, spirits and poltergeists in her home. And it got so bad that one night 
her family decided just to move out in the middle of the night. Her mother basically sold the house two days later and uh, they bought an apartment building in another area, Zone 15, which was basically new. It wasn't any of the old spots in, in Guatemala City. So they were relieved because it was a spanking brand new apartment. But her mother, when she was out shopping one day, spotted a beautiful Virgen del Cobre, or uh, the Copper Virgin, which I believe is Cuban. I'm not sure about that. And she decided to buy it on the spot. She haggled with the vendor and she brought home to the new home this um, supposedly antique statue sculpture in wood of a virgin. She put it in the foyer of the apartment and it was practically that same night or the next day that things started happening in this apartment again. And the whole family like, oh no. I mean, we just were run out of our home because of something similar and it followed us home. You know, it followed us to the new place. This, this can't be going on. So it was basically, they would see shadows in the living area. They would hear footsteps. Furniture would, would sort of be rearranged. And it was just really in the living room, dining room area, which of course the foyer opened up into. They had no other resource then to call a priest, a very famous priest in, in Guatemala, who is, I believe back in those days, the only one that had permission, license, certified, whatever it is they get, to actually perform exorcisms. So they explained the situation to him, and it wasn't immediately that he came over, but when he finally got around, he, he walked into the home and said basically that there was um, a demonic presence, that it didn't belong to the apartment, and it didn't belong to the family. It wasn't following the family around. So he basically asked, I guess, what is now known to be common questions. Um, have you had any strange visitors? Have you recently acquired an, an antique? Things like that. And then finally her mom remembered, oh, you know, I did buy this statue of the Virgin of the, of the Copper Virgin. And, uh, well, it's an antique, but it's a virgin. I mean, it's, it's, it's a religious icon. It can't have anything bad to it. The priest took it and immediately said, no, this is a religious icon, but um, devil worshiping groups or black magic witchcraft, which is very popular in the tropics, more than what you would think it is. This has been used, this statue has been used in, in some sort of witchcraft slash black magic ritual. And uh, whatever they conjured is uh, attached to the statue. So he basically asked if he could, you know, take the statue to cleanse it. They of course said, yes, take it. He did a cleansing um, sacrament or ritual in, in the apartment and he took the virgin and I think basically it was that the statue had to be present in X amount of masses and uh, then it would be clean. So he took the statue, things seized immediately and after the statue had been cleansed, 
he offered to return it, but her family said, no, 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 you can keep it. And um, actually, the statue is still at the church where it was taken to be cleansed. So, yeah, antiques maybe will have a haunting attached to them or a presence attached to them, but not always because whoever previously owned them was very attached to them in life. But because there are other forces, you know, you can believe that or not, uh, that come attached to things, objects that have been used for other things. I mean, if I could tell you half of the stuff I saw and or heard while living in Central America for a spin, that would hair, you know, that would that would totally raise your hair. Okay, well, I hope you can use this. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Yeah, call us and tell us more. Yeah, we want to hear more about that. I don't think I'm uh, one ever to really want to buy, even if I did want to buy, I don't think I would be buying religious relics that I don't know the history of. Really? Of any sort. You know, I mean, they, I don't know, they just kind of give me the creeps, no matter what. Even, no matter what the imagery is on it, it can be... uh, you know, a manger scene half the time, unless I know where that came from. Uh, it's, I don't, I don't know because there is that out there. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you don't know what it's been used in, where it's, you know, been and I don't know. It could have been used in a lot of dark places, just like this, where it was, you know, the Virgin Mary, uh, you know, seemingly innocent, good figure. But yeah, those can be used in a lot of dark you know, type of rituals, you know. I, I do know the history of the uh, the manger scene in our house, and that's very old. There you go. But it was given to me by my grandpa, and it was uh, pieces that he went to the dime store and collected as a boy growing up. So it's it's like, okay, it was, you know, from Woolworths, you know. Sure. <laughs> Essentially, piece by piece. I don't think there's too many satanic rituals going on at Woolworths in, you know, 1930-something. So, um, yeah, that just kind of creeps me out. When, when you hear stories of that. There was a uh, uh, a case uh, in, in Wisconsin. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, I learned about when I went on a... And it's actually in an episode. We actually have the audio in a previous episode. It's one of our first episodes on the show. It's me and Chad Lewis, and uh, he's a paranormal investigator up north in Wisconsin. And it's us walking through a cemetery. And uh, we go down into a... Uh, a dark wooded area at night and there's a grotto essentially it's all the stations of the cross and it's these giant rock altars that had been built and this was set up by a church that was really nearby and this was set up you know probably in the 30s or the 40s or something and it was supposed to be this nice little kind of nature walk and you could kind of be at peace and go through and pray or whatever as you go through and um you know make you know either pray at these altars or whatnot it was it was not it was a catholic thing it wasn't meant as anything bad okay Okay. well (laughs) needless to say it's out there in a public place uh and it turned into something bad um at night in the dark uh there was all these reports of like satanic rituals being performed on these altars with these figurines just like this lady described here in this uh story um, and they started having all the vandalism issues and just negative. It was just, it was a bad deal. So the altars are all still there because they're rock. So okay. you're not really going to knock them down very easily. Um, but uh, all the figurines the church took and they blessed them and buried them. 
Um, They didn't, like, go and sell them at the church rummage sale. Um, For that reason, because they had been used inappropriately and could probably carry um, whatever the hell, you know, attached itself to them. Um, But the altars are still there, and that was one of the creepiest things I ever saw when I came up upon one of these altars in the dark. I wish I still had these pictures, because I took one and it snapped, and the image that was captured just simply in sticks on the altar spelled L-I-V-E somebody wrote it was so Blair witchy yeah but uh, unfortunately the digital camera I was using died pretty much at that exact same time after I took the first picture there you go I charged it and everything too it's just how old we were doing it we were recording this on mini disc Um, luckily that did not die throughout the recording of the event Um, anyway you can listen to that whole uh, episode this is something I recorded about 10 years ago Um, but I've kept the audio and thought it'd be fun to share but it's uh, one of our first or second episodes I believe it's called Graveyard Ghost Investigation okay but it's uh, it's creepy real ghost stories online should we talk about Annabelle yeah let's do that what's uh, what is your knowledge of uh, of the subject of Annabelle I know very little other than at the very beginning of The Conjuring there's the creepy doll yep and the five minutes of The Conjuring that I saw, that was it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and really, it's funny because within The Conjuring, that was almost kind of like a premise of these people investigate paranormal instances. Annabelle really had nothing to do with The, with the Conjuring case. Right. Um, it's, it's curious as to how it was brought in there or why it was brought in there. I'm guessing it was brought in there with the mindset of, hey, if we splice this little bit of this other story in here, we have a follow-up movie. Yeah, I'm thinking that's probably exactly what they did. But I'm, I heard they're also working on a Conjuring 2, which... How do you do that? I don't! How do you that's do that? Where it's, that's where it's like Amityville 2 or Amityville 3, and they were just like even more far-fetched. Yeah. You know, so. uh, here's the story of Animal. This is, um, this is, like I said, this is coming uh, from the Warrens. This is coming from... The, uh, the New England Paranormal Society. This is just uh, direct from them. So this is what uh, the real story of Annabelle is. So make note in your mind when you see the movie. You can tell your friends, no, here's what really happened. And your friends will throw popcorn at you saying, shut up and watch the movie. Uh, here he goes. In 1970, a mother purchased an antique Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store. There's difference number one right there, because in the movie, it's this creepy-ass-looking doll. I'm guessing Raggedy Ann just wasn't going to pass. So, anyhow, continue. Does everybody know what a Raggedy Ann looks like? It's the one with the red yarn hair. I think everyone knows what Raggedy Ann, don't they? I don't know. I suppose young people may not. Yeah, because it's kind of an older toy. We were maybe the last generation that would play with a Raggedy Ann. I haven't seen one in a store No, either have I. There was a Raggedy Ann Saturday morning cartoon in the 80s. Oh, really? When we were kids, but I think that was probably the end of it. Okay. It's a Raggedy Ann doll. Uh, The doll was a present for her daughter, Donna, on her birthday. Donna, at the time, was a student in college preparing to graduate with her nursing degree and resided in a tiny apartment with her roommate, Angie, a nurse as well. And this is, I think, what was portrayed. This part here was portrayed in The Conjuring. Uh, Pleased with the doll, Donna placed it on her bed as a decoration and didn't give it a second thought until a few days later. Within that time, both Donna and Angie noticed that there appeared to be something very strange and creepy about the doll. The doll apparently moved on its own, relatively unnoticeable movements at first, like a change in position, but as time passed, the movement became more noticeable. Donna and Angie would come home to find the doll in a completely different room from which they had left it. Sometimes the doll would be found cross-legged on the couch with its arms folded. Other times it was found upright, standing on its feet, 
leaning against the chair in the dining room. Several times, Donna is placing the doll on the couch before leaving work and will return home to find the doll back in her room on the bed with the door closed. Annabelle, the doll may not... uh, The doll not only move, but would actually write as well. But a month into their experiences, Donna and Angie began to find penciled messages on parchment paper reading, Help us and help Lou. The handwriting looked to belong to that of a small child. The creepy part about the message was not the wording, but the way they were written. At the time, Donna had never kept parchment paper on which the notes were written in the house, so where did that come from? One night, Donna came home to find the doll had moved again. This time, it was on her bed. Donna had come to find that this was typical of the doll, but somehow she knew this time it was different. Something wasn't right. A sense of fear came over her when she inspected the doll and saw what looked like blood drops on the back of its hands in its chest, seemingly from nowhere. A liquidy red substance had appeared on the doll. Scared and desperate, Donna and Angie decided it was time to seek expert advice. Not knowing where to turn, they contacted a medium and a seance was held. Donna was then introduced to the spirit of Annabelle Higgins. The medium related the story to Annabelle to both Donna and Angie. Annabelle was a young girl that resided on the property before the apartment was built. There were happy times. She was a young girl of only seven years old when her lifeless body was found in the field upon which the apartment complex now stands. The spirit related to, related to the medium... Uh, that she felt comfort with Donna and Angie and wanted to stay with them and be loved. Feeling compassion for Annabelle and her story, Donna gave her permission to inhibit the doll and stay with them. They were soon to find out, however, that Annabelle was not what she appeared to be. This was no ordinary case and definitely no ordinary doll. Lou was friends with Donna and Angie and had been with them since the day the doll arrived. Lou had never been fond of the doll and on several occasions warned Donna that it was evil and to get rid of it. Donna had a compassionate tie to the doll, and not giving much credence to Lou's feelings kept it. Donna's decision turned out to be a terrible mistake. Lou awoke one night from a deep sleep in the panic. Once again, he had a reoccurring bad dream, only this time somehow something seemed different. It was as though he was awake but couldn't move. He looked around the room but couldn't discern anything out of the ordinary, and then it happened. Looking down towards his feet, he saw the doll, Annabelle began to slowly glide up his leg, move over his chest, and then stopped. Within seconds, the doll was strangling him. Paralyzed and gasping for breath, Lou, at the point of asphyxiation, blacked out. Lou awoke the next morning, certain it wasn't a dream. Lou was determined to rid himself of that doll and the spirit that possessed it. Lou, however, would have one more terrifying experience with Annabelle. Preparing for a road trip the next day, Lou and Angie were... Reading over maps alone in her apartment, the apartment seemed eerily quiet. Suddenly... Rustling sounds came from Donna's room that aroused fear that someone had possibly broken into the apartment. Lou, determined to figure out who or what it was, quietly made his way to the bedroom door. He waited for the noises to stop before entering and turning on the light. The room was empty except for Annabelle, whom was tossed on the floor in the corner. Lou scoured the room, but for forced entry, but nothing was out of place. But as he got close to the doll, he got the distinct impression that somebody was behind him. Spinning around, he was quick to realize that nobody else was there. Then in the flash, he found himself grabbing for his chest, doubled over, cut and bleeding. His shirt was stained with blood, and upon opening his shirt there on his chest 
was what looked like to be seven distinct claw marks, three even, uh, three vertically and four horizontally. All were hot like burns. These scratches healed almost immediately, half gone the next day, fully gone by day two. Donna finally was willing to believe the spirit in the house was not that of a young girl, but inhuman and demonic in nature. After Lou's experiences, Donna felt... It was time to seek real expert advice and contacted Episcopal priest named Father Hagen. Father Hagen felt it was a spiritual matter, and he felt he needed to contact a higher authority in the church, so he contacted Father Cook, who immediately contacted the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine Warren immediately took interest in the case and contacted Donna concerning the doll. The Warrens, after speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou, came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not, in fact, possessed, but manipulated by an inhuman presence. Spirits possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. An inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or object. That is what occurred in the Annabelle case. The spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host. The spirit, or in this case, an inhuman demonic spirit, was essentially in the infestation stage of the phenomenon. It first began moving the doll around the apartment by means of teleportation to arouse the occupant's curiosity in hopes that they would give it recognition. Then, predictably, the mistake of bringing in a medium into the apartment to communicate with it, the inhuman spirit now had to communicate through the medium. Then preyed on the girl's emotional vulnerabilities by pretending to be a rather harmless, lost young girl, with which, during the seances, allowed permission from Donna to haunt the apartment. So this is where they granted permission. It's not like it just could have done all this on its own. The, the people actually had to say, yes, you can come haunt us. Okay. So it was granted permission. Uh, and so far as demonic is a negative spirit, it then set about causing uh, patently negative phenomena to occur. It aroused fear through a weird movements of the doll. It brought about the materialization of disturbing handwritten notes, the symbolic drops of blood in the doll, and ultimately it even attacked Lou, leaving behind the symbolic mark of the beast. The next stage of the infestation phenomenon would have been complete human possession. Had these experiences lasted another two or three more weeks, the spirit would have completely possessed, if not haunted or killed, one of the occupants in the house. At the conclusion of the investigation, the Warrens felt it appropriate to have a uh, recitation of an exorcism blessing by Father Cook to cleanse the apartment. The Episcopal blessing of the home is wordy, seven-page document that is distinctly positive in nature. Rather than specifically expelling evil entities from the dwelling, the emphasis is instead directed towards filling the home with the power of the positive of a God. At Donna's request... And as a further precaution against the phenomenon ever occurring in the home again, the Warrens took the big rag doll along with them when they left. Father Cook, although uncomfortable with his role as an exorcist, agreed to perform the seven-page rite of exorcism, a doctrine he recited through the apartment, at which point the Warrens were confident the entity would no longer reside there. They agreed to take the rag doll back home with them upon Ed placed the doll in the back seat of his car and agreed he would not take the interstate in the event the inhuman spirit still resided in the doll. His suspicions were all too correct, and in no time the Warrens felt themselves as the object of a vicious hatred. 
Then, at each dangerous curb, the car swerved and stalled at every other corner, causing the power and steering brakes to fail. Repeatedly, the car verged on collision. Ed reached into the back seat, into his black bag, and took out a vial of holy water and doused the doll, making the sound of the cross over it. The, st- the disturbances stopped immediately, and the Warrens arrived safely home. After the Warrens arrived home, Ed sat the doll in a chair next to his desk. The doll levitated a number of times in the beginning, then it seemed to fall inert. During the ensuing weeks, however, it began showing up in various rooms of the house. When the Warrens were away and had the, they had the doll locked up in the outer office building, they would often return to find it sitting comfortably upstairs in Ed's easy chair when they opened the main door. The doll also showed a hatred for clergymen who came into the house. In one instance, Father Jason Bradford, a Catholic exorcist, came into the house. Upon seeing the doll seated in the chair, he picked it up and said, You're just a rag doll, Annabelle. You can't hurt anyone. And tossed the doll back in the chair, at which point Ed exclaimed, That's one thing you better not say. Upon leaving the house later, Lorraine, Lorraine pleaded with the priest to please be careful driving and to call her when he arrived home. Lorraine discerned tragedy for this young priest, but... He had to go his way. A few hours later, Father Jason called Lorraine and explained that his brakes had failed and he, as he entered a busy intersection. He was involved in a near-fatal accident destroying his vehicle. Just one of the many events that occurred over the next few years. The Warrens had a special case built for Annabelle inside their occult museum where she resides to this day. Since the case was built, Annabelle no longer appeared to move. But she is thought to be responsible for the death of a young man who came to the museum on a motorcycle with his girlfriend. The young man, after hearing Ed's account of the doll, defiantly went up and began to bang on the case, insisting that if the doll can put scratches on people, then he wanted to also be scratched. Ed said to put to the young man, son, you need to leave and put him out of the building. On the way home, the young man and his girlfriend were laughing and making fun of the doll when he lost control of his motorcycle and went head on into a tree. The young man was killed instantly, and the girlfriend survived and was hospitalized for over a year. When asked what happened, the young woman explained that they were laughing about the doll when they lost control of the motorcycle. Ed warns, you do not challenge evil, that no man is more powerful than Satan. And that's the story of Annabelle, kids. Wow, that makes me want to think twice about doing Elf on the Shelf at Christmas. <laughs> Elf on the Shelf is not evil. No, but seriously, it sounds like, I mean, the first part, you know, where the doll's doing little things and writing well, little notes. Well, but we do that with the doll. Well, I know, but it that's where my mind went with it. It's like a demonic Elf on the Shelf. Well, here, if your Elf on the Shelf started doing that stuff on its own, yes, I agree. That would be kind of scary. Yeah. Anyway, we could do it. We should do an Annabelle for Halloween. No, we could get a Raggedy Ann doll and 30 days leading up to Halloween. We have Raggedy Ann or Annabelle in different positions around that, just like Elf on the Shelf. No, I don't think so. I smell a huge marketing opportunity here. Wow. I think that's asking (laughs) for trouble. Yeah, I do, too. I mean, do you think if you try to emulate a case like this, like we're literally if you took a uh, Raggedy Ann doll, named it Annabelle, and kind of mocked it. I mean, you, you, having never had contact with Annabelle or anything of the sort other than just knowing the story, do you think that could conjure something up just by almost almost kind of poking fun at it, you know, from that sort of a... This show is proof that stranger things have happened. 
Yeah, that's true. So I would say I'm not going to. It's even almost like do you're that. you're inviting evil in. Yes. By by pretending oh and telling the kids oh yeah yeah because one of these what would happen is you you start doing it the first couple nights you would be setting it up. And then you'd set it up one night, and then you'd go out the next morning, and it's set up in a completely different position than what you left it. Yeah, I'm no, yeah. I think it's a bad deal. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But I, what I don't understand is why they felt the need to do a whole different Annabelle story. Because you can't, in my opinion, you can't beat a good true story. And this sounds like plenty to do a whole movie from. I don't know, because honestly, I think a lot of this was explained in like the first 20 minutes of The Conjuring. Yeah. Almost that entire story was spelled out. So I'm wondering if they just kind of almost essentially blew it the first time uh, with The Conjuring because they got through that whole thing where really it was almost, that should have had its own movie. Yeah. I don't really understand why it was put out in like these two stories in the one movie that were completely unrelated. I get kind of trust setting up showing, hey, it's a spooky story, but The Conjuring itself was scary enough. Was it maybe to try and and bring some notoriety to to the film? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I because Annabelle was also a fairly unknown. It was okay. You know, unless you're really into it, okay. you know, paranormal stuff, you wouldn't have really known about it. But I don't know. Um, and the way that the Conjuring ended was, uh, it was uh, Ed got a call from. Someone in upstate New York about a, a case they were supposed to go and investigate, which turned out to be Amityville. I think that could be an interesting movie. Their their take on the Amityville. Yeah. Not necessarily, um, you know, the same old Amityville story that we've heard in the book and that we saw in the first movie, but more so what the Warrens take was on it. Because they actually, what happened was they were involved in a seance in the home. Uh, after the uh, the whole incident occurred, um, I believe. Um, uh, oh gosh, what's the dad's name? George. George. George Lutz was was present for that as well, um, and there were some reporters present um, as well. And this is when the ghost boy picture was taken. You've seen the ghost right. boy picture, haven't you? Yeah. Little boy looking over the railing with the glowing eyes. Or or a adult kneeling down with glasses on. Yeah, that was the other account of that. Where did we hear that was? Oh, that was the account that the, the documentarian had on that. Yeah. Um, of that. Yeah, there was a lot of cases on that. I still think it looks like a ghost boy. I think so. I think there's a lot of people that that look at that and go, that's, I don't somebody else I don't know but um, it would be interesting to see a movie done about that seance that was that happened um, and just what their take was on it mm-hmm. you know you can get through the, the story of the movie pretty quick and don't focus on it and make it a more factual Amityville movie for the first time ever have more of the real true story being told because it is a scary-ass tale when you are basing it on what the facts are. It's one of those stories that doesn't necessarily need a lot of embellishment. Right. You know? Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the case here, too. Yeah. I, I do want to... I, I, that being said, though, I still do want to see the Annabelle movie. But from what I've seen in the preview, uh, it looks like nothing is related to the reality of the situation or the story. So... Wow. It is what it is. 855-853-4802 if you have a real ghost story. 855-853-4802 to share your real ghost story with us. We would absolutely love to hear it. Real ghost stories. 
Online. Uh, let's go to a caller, 855-853-4802, 855-853-4802 is the phone number to dial in, or you can always write into the website at realghoststoriesonline.com with your real ghost story. Hello. Hi, my name is Barbara, and I have some paranormal experiences I'd like to share with you. I've been having experiences throughout my entire life. Um, approximately 20 years ago, I worked in a restaurant in Newtown, Connecticut. Ed and Lorraine Warren, a renowned demonologist, were actually regulars at this restaurant, and I got to know them very well. And uh, I had shared, you know, some of my experiences with them. And Lorraine Warren told me that I would have paranormal experiences for the rest of my life, that I had the type of energy that ghosts were attracted to. So she, you know, warned me that, you know, there would be much more to come, and she was right. Um, but I'm going to share with you uh, what's been going on since I've been living in the home that I'm currently living in. I've been here eight years. It's a colonial home in New Preston, Connecticut. Um, it's situated on the East Aspetuck River. And when I came to view the property with my husband, um, I did. I felt a strange presence in the home the first time I entered the home. Um, but the house is so picturesque it's, it, the views are incredible of the river um, any trepidation that I had over a strange feeling in the house was overridden by by my desire to live in such a beautiful home in such a beautiful place so we went ahead and we rented the house and um, my husband was a non-believer he did not believe in ghosts um, he had never had any you know, personal experiences um, so he just didn't believe and uh, one night in this house changed his mind uh, the very first morning uh, in the home, he turned to me at 6 a.m. and said, I can't believe this, but I think you're right. I think we have a ghost. Um, so I'm going to share with you just a couple of uh, experiences. There's many, many things that have happened in this house, but I'm going to share two. Um, we were dog sitting for a friend of mine's dog, and the dog was here uh, for approximately two months. And uh, this dog, his name was Bailey, and he adored me. Um, so he was always by my side. And one night, uh, I woke up to him shaking in the bed. And um, he was actually trying to crawl under me, um, which was very strange. He had never done anything like that before. Um, it was as if he, it was as if he was trying to get protect him from something. So anyway, I, um, I get up. And, uh, you know, it had woken my husband up as well. And I, and I take the dog outside, and uh, he actually, I opened the door to, to bring him outside, and the dog took off out of the house and just went in right through my yard into my neighbor's yard. And, you know, I, I quickly followed after him and wound up retrieving him three yards over. Uh, he would not voluntarily come back with me. I had to pick him up and carry him through the three yards. Uh, once I got to my back porch, he wiggled out of my arms and took off running again. It was such strange behavior for this dog. Um, I went back and retrieved him. He was in the same spot three yards over. This time, I held on to him tightly when I got to the porch and re-entered the home with him to find my husband um, trying to disarm the smoke detector in our bedroom. It was it was ringing, and he had pressed the button to disarm it several times, but it was still ringing. <clears throat> uh, Bailey would not re-enter the bedroom. He was standing in the threshold, shaking and whining and crying. Um, it had become very obvious to me that he didn't want me in this bedroom either. 
But anyway, so my husband's trying, you know, still trying to disarm the alarm and it's still ringing. So he takes the batteries out of it and it's still ringing. So that's a little baffling. Okay, how is this working without batteries? Um, but at that point, he actually rips the wires out of it. And to our astonishment, it was still ringing. We eventually wound up um, putting it in a drawer under some uh, of my husband's heavy work jeans and stuff, and that muffled the sound, and we were eventually able to fall back asleep. But I should note that Bailey was here for a few more weeks, and he never re-entered our bedroom again. Um, and I'm going to share one more experience. Uh, one night, I'm lying in bed, and it's 3 a.m. I'm woken up to the sound of footsteps walking back and forth on my side of the bed. I kind of reached over and I could feel my husband's laying next to me and we're the only two in the house. So uh, it was quite frightening. Uh, for 20 minutes, I laid there listening to footsteps walk back and forth on my side of the bed. I refused to open my eyes. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to see what was there. I really didn't. I just laid there with my eyes tightly shut and after 20 minutes of this um whatever it was it it growled and as it growled it the growling sound moved towards the bed as if something were coming at me growling at me and that woke my husband up um and he was terrified um I was terrified too but uh he was really terrified that that really freaked him out so anyway, um, as I had mentioned, uh, we, we are renters, we don't own. So uh, approximately a year into our being here, uh, the gentleman that owns the house was moving a bunch of furniture out of our basement, um, a whole house full of furniture. And my husband volunteered to help him load it onto the truck. And, uh, you know, my husband asked him, you know, uh, what, did you have a tenant run off in the middle of the night? Like, where did all this furniture come from? To which uh, the landlord replied, Sort of. So my husband said, what do you mean sort of? And that is when we learned that six weeks prior to our renting this place, the gentleman that lived here before us committed suicide in our bedroom. There are so many other things that have happened here, and I'll probably call back in and share those experiences with you as well. But uh, I figured I'd start with the, the two best, the best ones. And, and the smoke detector and the footsteps were pretty scary events. Um, thank you so much for listening to my stories. Have a great day. And thank you for calling in. Yeah, please do call back in again and, uh, and share your, your ghost stories. Those were, those were interesting. I don't think I could sleep in that room anymore knowing that somebody killed themselves there. <sighs> yeah, that could be difficult, but what would you do? What if there's no other rooms to sleep in? I don't know. Do you go to the couch? Do you move out? I have another question. Yeah. Lorraine Warns tells you personally yeah. you're going to have paranormal experiences the rest of your life. How do you sleep that night? How do you <laughs> After do you that. get do you get used to that? Do you get used to having paranormal experiences? I don't know that I would ever get used to that. There you go. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Real Ghost Stories Online, an encore presentation of some of our best ghost stories we've ever gotten. If you have a real ghost story, you can call it into us at 855-853-4802 or write in on the website realghoststoriesonline.com And remember, if you want more bonus episodes that you can feed off of anytime you want, just sign up to be an EPP through our website. That's an extra podcast person at realghoststoriesonline.com 
www.realghoststories.com. Until next time, for Jenny Bruschi, I'm Tony Bruschi. Thanks for listening to Real Ghost Stories Online.